Good morning. If we could find our seats. If you would turn to Psalms 51. Asher, before we get going, if I could just pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, God, we are, um, Lord, I am a sinner, Lord, and uh, God, we are just dependent on your mercy, Lord. I pray this morning, Lord, as we go over the song of repentance, Lord, that we don't trust in our own works, Lord, that we don't trust in anything we have earned, Lord, because we have only earned your wrath, Lord. That we trust in your Son and what he has done on the cross, Lord. Let the Psalms of repentance be our heart cry to you, Lord, as we reflect Lord, on the life that we have lived, that we are living, Lord, that we trust in your Son, that we cry out for forgiveness and mercy where we have failed, and that we trust in your grace, Lord. And I pray on the other end of that grace is joy, Lord. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we seek that joy in your salvation, Lord. I pray that we end today's service in praise and awe and love and joy and reflection of the great sacrifice you have made with your son for us, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. This summer we've been going through the Psalms. We've uh, um, gone through Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 73, and Psalms 110. Today we're going over Psalm 51, and it was beautiful. I don't know if you've caught, if you're familiar, how familiar you are with Psalms 51, but it pretty much was sung to you um, this morning. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I was, I was pretty emotional first service. After studying a psalm for a week and reflecting on my own sinful heart um, and then hearing the psalm put to music in that way uh, was impactful. So I am very thankful for the worship that has already been going on this morning. And I pray that we continue to worship as we go through Psalms 51, which is a psalm of repentance, a psalm of repentance. And I just want to start by looking at the heading, what this psalm is all about. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The psalm was written by King David after Nathan the prophet came and confronted David of his sin. And actually, I know you just turned to Psalms 51, but if you could put a bookmarker there, um, we're going to uh, go to a couple different places before we really dive into the psalm. And, and the first place I want to go to is where this repentance happened. And that's 2 Samuel t- chapter 12, starting in verse 1. So if you could turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And as you're turning there, I want to give you the context to this chapter. I'm going to read a short paraphrase. This is not scripture. This is just a paraphrase of scripture about David's sin. One spring day from, the, from his palace roof, when King David should have been at war with his men, he saw a beautiful woman bathing named Bathsheba. He desired her for himself and committed adultery with her. When he found out she was pregnant, he had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, sent into the hottest part of the battle with the Amorites where he would be killed. David then proceeded to take Bathsheba as his own wife, pretending to be merciful 
to Uriah by taking on his pregnant widowed wife and child as his own. And it seemed like David got away with it until God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about this sin. And that's where we're at in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. I'm actually just going to read this from the New Living Translation. I just think it's very readable and understanding um, this, this portion of Scripture. So if you just re- read along with me, 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. And look at verse 5. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, in probably one of the most courageous places in all of Scripture, this prophet looked David straight in his eyes and said, You are that man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and, his, and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the, the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stolen his wife. And skip down, look down at verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Psalms 51 is going to dive into the heart of David during this time. David's confession, his inner thoughts as he cries out to God for forgiveness and mercy. If you would, turn back to Psalms 51, verse 1. Verse 1 starts off with a cry of mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. It's a cry for mercy because it's the only thing David can do. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Steadfast love, those are covenant words. Those are words of relationship. It's important right off the bat to understand this Psalms. David knows he belongs to the Lord. He knows he has a relationship with the Lord. In other words, he knows he is saved. 
He's, re- he's really making an appeal to that relationship in the psalm. One commentator said this, When sin disrupts the fellowship with the covenant Lord, the sinner has no right to divine blessing. However, the Lord has promised to forgive, and His forgiveness is based solely on His love and compassion. Therefore, David appeals to the Lord's love and His great compassion, His great mercy, knowing He is in covenant relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 1 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David is appealing to God's character. Because he can't appeal to anything else. He can't appeal to justice. He'd be doomed. He can't appeal to his own work. He's earned nothing but wrath. David grounds his appeal in the character of God, in God's faithfulness in his covenant relationship with David, according to your steadfast love, in God's great mercy, according to your abundant mercy. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, bolt out my transgressions. David is saying, I know you are merciful, God. I know you're merciful. Have mercy on me. This is an important question I think we should ask. How does David know God is merciful? And how do we know that God is merciful? The answer really primarily is God has revealed himself as a merciful God. I believe David, as he's writing this psalm, in his mind he has Exodus chapter 34, 6 through 7, as he's writing Psalms 51. And, and I think it's so important that, again, I want you to turn to Exodus 34, verse 6. We'll be back in Psalms 51. I'm indebted to Austin on these two verses, because I believe, and with his help, I believe this is one of the clearest revelations of who God is in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. It's one of the most important two verses, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. And on top of that, it's one of the most neglected two verses by the church today. Quick context of these two verses and what's going on. And I believe, again, this is foundational to, to, to David's plea for mercy. Moses, this is the time of Moses, Moses cries out to God, Who are you? Reveal yourself to me. What does it mean that you are Yahweh? And look at verse 6. Chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Again, as we've said before, the Lord is all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capitals, meaning that that's the name of God, Yahweh. And he repeats himself, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's the only time we see this in Scripture where God repeats his name twice. In other words, he's telling Moses, Moses, this is who I am. Moses, this is what it means that I am Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. Moses, I am a merciful God. David knows Psalms 34. And that's because this was well known in all of Israel. These two verses are quoted or alluded to throughout the Old Testament. I mean, let me just show you verse 6. Look at verse 6. The, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, and gra- or, a, or God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, now listen to what Psalms 51 says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Now look at verse 7. Exodus 34, verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins. There's three words repeated there, iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Now listen to Psalms 51.1. Bolt out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. David knows God is faithful to his covenant. That's why he says abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David knows that God is, is merciful and forgiving. That's why he cries out, Forgive, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. He knows it. David knows Exodus 34, which means he knows the end of verse 7. Look at verse 7. Forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, but... But... Who, who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, when David pleads in Psalms 51, bolt out my transgression, he's appealing to God's mercy, love, and faithfulness, but he's also creating a dilemma. How can a just God bolt out transgressions? How can a just God be merciful? I mean, just think about this. Mercy, in its most simplistic understanding, is, is this. Mercy, I will overlook your sins. Justice, in its most simplistic understanding, is this. I will not overlook your sins. How can a just God forgive David's ugly, nasty horrible sin. Uh, I just want you to hear it again. This is 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then David confessed to, to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And we read that, and I, I, I even heard it this morning as I went through it and read it. That's great. What a forgiving, merciful God. But what about justice? What about justice? I, I just, I'm, we have to grasp this, and I want to put this in perspective the best I can. I want you to see that justice matters, and we want justice. Let's remember how ugly the sin truly was. David, the king, should have been war with his men, his faithful men, who sacrificed everything for him. One of those faithful men, Uriah, was at war for David. And while he was at war for David, David slept with his wife. Then he had Uriah killed 
He murdered him just because he didn't want to look bad. He pretended after all this that he was the hero being merciful on Uriah, his wife, and this child. And God just forgives David. Now I want to put this in perspective, so think about this. What if you were Uriah's dad? David, this king, stole your daughter-in-law. David, this king, kills your son. This son that you are so proud of. And now God's just going to forgive David. What about the justice? What about my son? True forgiveness is never free. True forgiveness is never free. For David's sins to be bolted out, forgiven, his sins had to be paid for. Otherwise, God is not a just God. And listen, of course they were. We know this, right? David's sins were paid for on the cross. The cross solves this dilemma of God being merciful and God being just at the same time. God's justice was poured out on Jesus so God's mercy could be poured out on us, so God's mercy could be poured out on David. That means when Uriah's dad cries out to God and says, are you just going to forgive him? Act like that sin never happened? God could say back to Uriah's dad, no, 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 I am a just God. I don't just overlook sins. David's sins will be paid for on the cross. Justice will be served at the death of my son. Listen to what Colossians 2.14 says. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, justice demanded a payment for us. This, he, that's God, set aside, nailing it to the cross. Mercy was poured out on David because justice was poured out on Jesus. Jesus paid that debt. Forgiveness is never free. We live in a culture that says God will just forgive. It's no big deal. Your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness cost. I'll turn back to Psalms 51. With that context, let's quickly go through this Psalms. To be honest, I could just read it. It preaches itself. Psalms 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Bolt out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sins is ever before me. I know, David says. David here is taking Full responsibility for the sins. You need to be honest, he could have blamed Shift. You don't think Bathsheba knew what she was doing? I do. We find out that she's a smart lady and a little manipulative. 
but he doesn't. He takes full responsibility because true repentance takes full responsibility of one's own sins. Look at the personal pronouns in verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me. In other words, I need mercy. Bolt out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sins. I know my transgressions, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. He's not blame shifting here. All we get in this Psalms is, I am a sinner, I am a sinner, I am a sinner. He also understands the gravity of his sin. Look at verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David knows he's sinned against others. Let's be clear on that. He knows he's caused a mess. He knows he has caused pain. But he has primarily sinned against a holy, just, infinite God. And because of this, he deserves damnation. Look at the second part of verse 4. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David is saying, God, you would be just if you destroyed me. Blameless in your judgment. Psalms 133 says this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in other words, not be merciful, give us what we deserve. O Lord, who could stand? You know the answer to that? No one. I want you to think about this. Something we miss in popular Christianity today. God would still be a good, just, holy God if he sent every single person to hell. It would display his justice and holiness and his wrath towards sin. The Bible makes this clear. All have sinned. That means every single person that's ever lived, all has sinned besides Jesus and falls short of the glory of God. It's Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death. And that's the second death. That's hell. Romans 6.23. Death is what man has earned. It is his wages, and it's just to give someone their wages. You know, he did that with the angels, right? I mean, from what we, we see in Scripture, the angels rebelled, and he just sent them out. There was no second chance. Listen, the confusing thing about Scripture is not that people go to hell. The confusing thing about Scripture, the thing that just it doesn't make sense, is that anyone is saved at all. And David understood this. He deserves death. And there's some application here for us when it comes to repentance. True repentance doesn't blame shift. It doesn't say, I sinned because of fill in the blank. True repentance doesn't blame shift. True repentance understands the gravity of sin. We deserve nothing from God, nothing from God, but God's holy, just, infinite wrath. And David gets this. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Right? David didn't just sin. 
David's very nature is sin. Well before Bathsheba. From conception on. Listen, we don't sin and therefore we are sinners. David wasn't a sinner because he sinned with Bathsheba. We are sinners by nature and therefore we sin. It's so countercultural. It's so countercultural. Our culture thinks we are born good, that man is born good. And then something outside of us happens to us that makes us sin. Sin, in other words, is blamed on something outside of us our upbringing, our education, our environment, our parents, a traumatic event. But the Bible says you are born spiritually dead. You are born into sin. You have a sin nature. Therefore, you can't blame your upbringing, your education, your environment. Your sin is between you and God. And David gets this. David's prayer is theologically rich. He understands three things. He understands himself, a sinner. He understands God, holy, just, and merciful. And he understands his position, dependent on the mercy of God. That's all he has. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In other words, it starts from inside repentance. What's going on in the heart? Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In other words, cleanse me, God, from the, from the inside. And I want you to pay attention to the personal pronouns again. He says, purge me. Wash me. In other words, I need to be clean. You need to cleanse me, God, because I am dirty. And if you do it, listen, if you do it, God, it will be done. If you wash me, if you, if you purge me, I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David knows he's saved. Through this whole psalm, he's confident in God's mercy. He's confident in God's faithfulness to his covenant relationship. God has promised to forgive, and he's trusting in that. He's not asking for salvation here. He's really asking for three things. The first thing he's asking for is forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a relationship with God. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, bolt out my transgressions. That's restoration with that relationship. The second thing he wants is a clean heart. He's tired of sinning. I, I tell you what, as I grow in my, my sanctification, my understanding, I think the thing that I'm most excited for heaven is, and I know it's my relationship with the Lord and God's glory is what's going to bring me more joy than anything else, I, and I get that, but the fact that I just won't sin anymore. I don't struggle with it. There's freedom. I'll truly have a clean heart. And only God can do that. That's why we die and we're glorified. That's a miracle. We're glorified with a clean heart. 
Second thing he's crying out for is a clean heart. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Third thing he's asking for is joy and gladness that comes with reconciliation and a clean heart. Let me hear joy and gladness. David has lost his joy and gladness. Sin has robbed David's joy. and stole it. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice, he cries out. Bring back joy. This is a broken man over his sins. And, and it's by God's grace. Look what it says. The bones that you have broken. The heavy hand on the, of the Lord was weighing on David. His, his bones felt broken. Have you ever felt this way before? Broken over sin in your life? I know I have. I know I am saved. I know God's grace will cover my sins. Right? We've gone over that. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's for a Christian. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, God will forgive you. It's really one thing that keeps me from sinning. The heavy hand of the Lord. Sleepless nights, broken bones, the loss of the joy and gladness I have in my relationship with God. I've prayed Psalms 51 before. Restore my joy. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and bolt out all my iniquities. Create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a, a willing spirit. Again, David's not lost his salvation. He's asking for the joy of his salvation to be back. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. His sin, and this is what sin does. It promises great joy. Promised Adam and Eve great joy. Promised David great pleasure and joy. Sin robs you of your joy. It's the great lie of Satan. And David desperately wants his joy back. Look at 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Only, only you could restore that joy, God. Only, only you could uphold me. Only you can give me a willing spirit. This is a heart cry of a truly repented man. And look at verse 13. I think this is interesting. We saw this in Psalm 73 too. Look at verse 13. Then, then, if you forgive me, if you're merciful to me, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Again, this is the second time we've seen this where repentance leads to action. Repentance leads to a desire to teach, a desire to act. Listen, true repentance always leads to action. That's why fruit is a sign of salvation. One commentator put it this way. 
There's a close connection between a joyous faith and an infectious one. And between experiencing restoration and leading others to that knowledge. If you truly understand, if you truly understand what what you have been saved from, you'll have a desire desire to proclaim it. A desire to praise God. To tell others to teach others about it. Look at what David says in in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You're not going to stop David from singing after forgiveness. We're blessed to have Wes this summer. We have, I think, two more Sundays with him, and he has to go back to school. But it shouldn't stop us from praising the Lord. Him, know him, contemporary music, loud, soft. We should come together as a congregation praising God no matter what. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Praising and singing, proclaiming the goodness and mercies of God. Look at verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God will not turn away from that. Listen, being religious will not save you. Being religious will not save you. In the Old Testament, I was going to the temple, sacrificing an animal, keeping the Sabbath, getting circumcised. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, and they were not saved. In the New Testament today, that's going to church, getting baptized, reading your Bible, doing communion. Only brokenness over sin. Heartfelt sorrow and repentance and then faith in Christ as your only hope. Faith in God's mercy brings true salvation. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Then David ends this amazing psalm with a prayer for Jerusalem. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. I think this is prophetic uh, with Jerusalem because of their sins getting destroyed and exiled. A lot of people even think that Psalms, the last two verses here were added on later as Jerusalem would cry out to God in exile because of their sins, asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy, repenting of their sins. And then they added this later. I think David, being a prophet, is crying out for the well-being of Jerusalem, knowing that his sin affects other people. King of Jerusalem, king of Israel, his sins affect other people. Affected a whole community, affected God's people. Here's another lie from Satan. Your sins don't hurt anyone else. You know how many parents I've seen just in tears because of the sins of their kids? 
You know how many kids I've seen just in tears because of the sins of their parents? Your sins affect more than just you. You should have learned that from Adam and Eve. David gets it. He's crying out for mercy on Jerusalem, that his sins wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. He's praying to protect her, to keep her safe, to build up her walls. Verse 19, Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's only after repentance and faith. It's only after a heart that is broken over sin and and faith and trust in the merciful mercies of God. Then God would delight in David and Israel's religion, their obedience. Listen, there's a concept or conception that's going around in popular Christianity that, and it's true, that God desires a relationship, not religion. But, but we've got to understand that God desires religion, too. We, as Christians, are called to be religious. Right? We're called to be baptized. We're called to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're called to faithfully meet together. We're called to sing praises together. We're called to evangelize. We're called to read the Bible. We're called to give But all of it is meaningless. It's all meaningless without a broken heart over sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's where the relationship comes in. And we're going to celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross this morning at the table. Men, if you could get ready for communion and if you want to go grab your daughter or son from class, this would be the time. I want to end this sermon today with a story. The story. Many years ago, there was a famous correspondence in the London Times under the subject, what is wrong with the world today? Think about that question, how many times that's been asked. In this editorial, the writer researched and reported on the various moral and social ills plaguing the world. The article called for an answer from the readers. Could you imagine today if this would happen? I'm just picturing like New York Times or the Wall Street Journal putting a heading, respond please to what is wrong with the world on Twitter. What would be on there, right? Liberals. Conservatives. Democrats. Republicans. Trump, Obama, Muslims, Jews, Christians, abortion, pollution, global warming, education, higher education. Of course, there'd be many tweets, or in this day, letters that got sent in. But the best letter mailed to the editor was from the distinguished G.K. Chesterton. He wrote, Dear Editor, What's Wrong with the World? I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. True freedom and salvation starts with honest self-evaluation. One pastor put it this way. Unquestionably, the heart of the world's problems is the sinfulness of man. 
no doubt about it. But more than that, the source of each person's personal problems is sin. More specifically, one's own sin. Thankfully, there is good news. Jesus came to die for your sins. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we have earned, every single person, all have sinned, is death, is hell, is wrath. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that's what we celebrate this morning as we come to the table. We'll have a time of reflection and repentance as we think through sins we need to ask God for forgiveness for. But as we take the elements this morning, we should be joy-filled that Christ died for us on the sins. I want to talk, if there's someone here that doesn't know the Lord this morning, put your faith in Jesus. God is offering the free gift of eternal life, a free gift of forgiveness and mercy through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. Put your faith in him. And I'd ask this, just let the plate go by. If you don't know where you stand with the Lord, just take some time as we have some quiet self-reflection this morning to talk to the Lord. He can hear your thoughts. He can hear your prayers. Cry out for mercy and just let the plate go by. And I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Man, if you can come forward, we'll get ready this morning.